This podcast is hosted by Dr. Happymon Jacob. Dr. Jacob is an associate professor of security studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. His weekly column on India's national security and foreign policy issues is published by The Hindu. He is also the author of two new books on India-Pakistan border, Line on Fire by Oxford University Press and Line of Control by Penguin India. Hello and welcome to the National Security Conversation. India's foreign policy is at a major crossroads today. The international system, the South Asian neighborhood, and the global balance of power are all undergoing major transformations. And New Delhi today needs to take serious decisions on how to respond to these developments. Will India continue to play it safe and be cautious? Or will the line of active control stand up with China finally force India to align with the United States of America? If so, would strategic autonomy be a thing of the past? Where does our foreign policy go from here? To give us a big picture view of this predicament faced by India's foreign policy makers, I have with me Ambassador Shyam Saran. Shyam Saran, a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research is a former foreign secretary and has served as the Prime Minister's special envoy for nuclear affairs and climate change. He was also the chairman of the National Security Advisory Board of the Government of India. Welcome to the National Security Conversation, Ambassador Saran. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, Ambassador, you wrote in the Indian Express in June 2019 that I quote, as US-India competition intensifies India should refrain from taking sides. India should be successful in resisting demand to choose one side of the fence or the other because the fence itself will be rickety and shifting. 14, unquote. 14 months since you wrote this, a lot has happened. In particular, the standoff on the line of actual control with China. Do you think the situation on the ground has changed since you wrote this drastically? If so, have you changed your opinion about the importance of being on the fence. So I have a fundamental problem with this idea that you know India is sort of always sitting on the fence. <laughs> I don't think that's a you know accurate characterization of uh, India's uh, foreign policy or what India's foreign policy uh, should be, uh, because even at the time when we said we were a non-aligned country, uh, it was not that India was a passive actor. In fact, if you look at the whole history post-Indian independence and I would say almost uh, uh, right up to uh, the 70s, India has always been a very, very active participant uh, in international affairs, in regional affairs. Uh, so it has not looked upon its uh, policy as, you know, I don't want to get involved with the rest of the world. I will stay away from everyone uh, and keep myself protected. Uh, I think that's a wrong way to look at India's you know, foreign policy. Uh, what is uh, really the uh, a characteristic of Indian foreign policy? And I see, by the way, a certain continuity in that policy uh, over the last several uh, decades. Uh, the way I describe it is that as a major power and as a country which believes it is a major power and destined to become an even more you know, uh, a powerful uh, country. Uh, right. India wants that on issues which are of vital interest to India. 
it should be able to take a relatively autonomous decisions that is those decisions should not be taken in some other capital they should be taken in indian capital so when we talk about for example non alignment or we are talking about strategic autonomy somebody today says multi alignment right uh, issue based coalitions at the heart of all these various labels that we are using i think the reality is precisely what i mentioned that india wants to be certain that on issues which it determines and that may change over a period of time what we consider to be vital interest for india but whatever we determine to be in our vital interest on those issues india should be able to take relatively autonomous decision and i believe this characteristic of indian foreign policy uh, has not changed over the last you know seven decades or so so i uh, as i said i have a fundamental problem in looking at india as somehow you know always sitting on the fence i don't think that is uh, that is an accurate uh, description of how india uh, sort of uh, executes formulates and ex Sure. Let's let's come to the specific uh, issue um, about the U.S.-China competition um, that was intensifying when you wrote this article in 2019. And in this particular context, you are making the argument that we should neither go towards the U.S. side nor should we go towards the Chinese side. My question is: Has that assessment changed in the wake of what happened in 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 Galwan uh, in the middle of this year? Well, you know, it's not a either-or situation. Uh, it's not as if either you are in an alliance or uh, you are not in an alliance. You know there are shades of partnership in between those two ends of the spectrum. Don't forget that from 1960 to 1990, did we not have a very strong strategic partnership with the Soviet Union? It was very much, uh, you know, based on a certain strong convergence of interests. particularly with respect to the threat which both countries perceived as emanating from china and that was the reason why we were very closely aligned not allied but certainly aligned and i think we are today in a similar kind of a situation but here instead of the soviet union we have the united states of america where there is a strong convergence of interest both countries that asia which is very important important to us should not fall under the domination of a new hegemonic power because india would not like to accept that kind of an architecture in asia so to that extent there has been due to recent developments in particular greater aggressiveness greater assertiveness that we are seeing on part of china not only on the borders with india but we are seeing this in many other domains particularly say south china sea so if you look at this changing situation is there greater convergence of interest between india and the us than perhaps a year and a half back i would say yes there is but it's not as if you know suddenly there is a dramatic sort of a departure from the past after all india us relations have been becoming more and more i think strong in different domains Uh, for the last several years in fact since the end of the cold war what we have seen is progressively 
a greater convergence of interest between India and the United States of America. Is that getting strengthened? Yes, I would say it is getting strengthened. Is that a big departure from the past? No, it is not a big departure from the past. Is it already taken the character of an alliance? Uh, no, it has not yet taken the character of an alliance. What is difference in an alliance from a alignment? Alliance is where, as far as the leadership of the alliance is concerned, you have to follow the leader's interest, even though it may not be your interest. Right. 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 In an alignment, you work together on areas of convergence, but there may be areas where uh, there is not much of a convergence. And the example I give you again, going back to the strategic partnership between India and the Soviet Union, there were areas of very strong convergence between the two sides. But take, for example, our attitude towards the non-proliferation treaty. You know, the Soviet Union, like the United States of America, wanted India to become part of the non-proliferation treaty. Hmm. We said, yes, we have convergent interests with you, but on this issue, we cannot follow your lead. So that's the difference, you know, between an alliance and an alignment. So, uh, Saran, you are, have I understood you correctly? Are you saying that India should perhaps strive towards a, an issue-based alignment with the United States of America rather than going into a military alliance with the United States of America? Well, what I'm saying is that there are strong convergences between India and the United States. So, when we are talking, for example, about the Indo-Pacific, we are talking about maritime security. No doubt there are very strong convergence of interest between the two sides. Hmm. But you know, if you look at our Western flag, which hmm. is also very important to us, say the relationship with uh, Iran or what is happening in Afghanistan, I do not see the same kind of alignment of interest with the United States as it is on our East. On the question so, of Iran. On the, question, on the question of Iran, yeah, you do not see on the, the same. question of Iran, because Iran is a very important country to us. Don't forget that Iran is also today, thanks to you know our Western flank in a sense being being blocked by uh, Pakistan, our uh, access to Afghanistan, our access to Central Asia, and even beyond, Iran has become very important in that context. So. Even though the United States of America, in its global view, may consider you know, Iran as a rogue nation or as a threat to US interest, that is not how we see it. So that is, if we were an ally of the United States, despite having these reservations, we would still have to follow uh, the US, US uh, lead on Iran. But we cannot. So I think we should uh, make this distinction that we have not yet come to a point where our interests, say by China, are threatened so much that we have no option but to, in fact, accept a subordinate an alliance kind of a relationship where and where we willingly subordinate our interests to that of the United States. That, I think, is an important uh, aspect that we should remember. So, uh, just, just to get that right, so uh, despite the setback that India uh, seems to have faced 
um, in Galwan. Um, India should not become a military ally of the United States. India should continue to maintain that strategic autonomy, as it were, um, and sort of selectively um, align with the United States uh, on certain issues. How I got that right? Well, uh, I think uh, Galwan is a very serious, uh, you know, development, a very negative development. But I don't think we should uh, exaggerate it mm -hmm. to the extent that we are seeing it as almost a threat to India's survival. Uh, no, I don't think we are anywhere near that. Yes, there is some uh, territorial uh, sort of incursion that we have to deal with. We have not even come to the end of our you know, military as well as the diplomatic efforts to try and see whether we can get back to status quo ante. Uh, I think we should give uh, some uh, room for those efforts to continue. And as I said, don't exaggerate the right. uh, sort of uh, the uh, significance of Galwan by itself. I think the larger question is Galwan as a demonstration of China's enhanced power, asserting itself unilaterally. The message coming to us is you should recognize what your place today is in terms of the power equation between the two sides. Right. You know, right. Uh, so there in, it is that larger context to, uh, which is more important to me rather than the specific incident of Galva. Right. Ambassador Saran, you use the phrase strategic autonomy and this is an oft used uh, phrase in Indian foreign policy. How do you understand this concept and, and what are its origins in the evolution of India's foreign policy as it were? So this is uh, what I was trying to explain earlier that, uh, you know, I do not see major departures in terms of the underpinning of India's foreign policy. And what is that underpinning? That underpinning is that India has always had a sense of itself as a major power, as a country which is destined to be a major actor in international affairs, not only like people say a rule taker, but also mm. a rule maker. Right. One of the architects in shaping the newly emerging global order, rather than having to just accept what others have constructed around us. Now, it, it is in that sense that I say that India has always and at different periods of time, it may have assessed its interests differently and perhaps pursued those interests in some different manner. But the essential goal of India has been that wherever I see my vital interests, wherever I see that the national interests of India are involved on those occasions, on those issues, we should be in a position to take, as I said, relatively autonomous decision. They cannot be 100% autonomous. Why? Because we are living in a multi-state kind of an environment. So, right. you know, I cannot right. in an absolute sense uh, try to enforce my interests over those of the other. So there is always a certain amount of give and take. Right. But that is where, relatively speaking, we should be able to take more or less autonomous or independent decisions.
So this is my concept of strategic uh, autonomy. And what I have argued for some time now is that whether you give it a label of non-alignment, whether you give it a, 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 you know, a label of multi-alignment, whether you say strategic autonomy or whether you say you know, issue-based uh, you know, coalition, in un underpinning all this is that particular principle that I talked about, which is, is India in a position to take, as I said, relatively autonomous decisions on issues which are of vital interest. Right. I mean, uh, Ambassador, um, the external affairs minister Jay Shankar um, recently made two interesting arguments in, in, in one statement. He said, non-alignment is an old concept today, but India will never be part of the alliance system. You basically uh, did mention the latter part of the argument, which is India will not be part of the alliance system. To that extent, you seem to agree with what the Foreign Minister Jayashankar said, but on the first oh. part, well, as I said, I am not so much concerned about what label you are using. So if Mr. Jayashankar is saying non-alignment is no longer <laughs> an appropriate phrase to use to describe India's foreign policy, okay, that's fine. Uh, but uh, whether or not a alliance is precluded for all time to come is something that I would perhaps be a little careful about. Because, quite theoretically speaking, there could be an occasion where India's interests are threatened in a manner that they can be safeguarded only through having an alliance relationship. Uh, hmm. So I do not, you know, preclude that forever. But I would certainly agree that placed as we are today, and given the kind of power which we are able to deploy today and hope to be able to deploy in the future, I would hope that we do not come to a point where we have to enter into an alliance relationship with whichever power. So right. we came fairly close to it, if you remember, in 1971 with the Soviet Union. Right. Because right. we were faced with a very, very difficult situation at that time. Right. So, we, it was not alliance, but it was pretty close <laughs> in a sense to uh, an alliance. Would uh, that situation again arise in the future? Uh, it could. I cannot uh, say that uh, it would not. But certainly I would agree that at this point of time, despite Galwan having happened, I do not see the need for that kind of an alliance. Ambassador, I understand the argument that you're making, but I think there seems to be a certain tension here because Jayashankar is clearly ruling out an alliance system, which you, you also did. What he's not, uh, what he's doing actually, on the other hand, is uh, it's, it's sort of soft peddling uh, or, or, or sort of de-stressing the importance of non-alignment, which could also be interpreted as, you know, a soft peddling the importance of strategic autonomy. Or am I, am I understanding him? Ambassador Saran, if, you, if, if we look at the international system today, the liberal international order seems to have taken a, um, um, you know, um, it's it sort of pushed to the back burner as it were. This is, this is a more realist world order today as it were, realism, quote-unquote. Norms and good behavior are on the wane and the real politics and self-help seem to be on the ascendance. Now, in, in, a, in a world of this kind, how should India engage that sort of an international system? 
So uh, the first point I would like to make is that, you know, the liberal international order uh, was something that was <laughs> for the West. Uh, right. I do not think that many no. other countries would accept for the liberal international order for them. You know, why were we, for example, constantly finding ourselves, you know, struggling with this international order? In many ways, the non-aligned movement itself was a reaction to this version of the liberal international order. You know, because it was based on an assumption of long-standing Western ascendancy. Political, security, as well as financial and economic. So, Indeed. I think when we are talking about, you know, how do we deal with this breakdown of the international, uh, you know, liberal order, uh, my first point is that it was not necessarily a positive from the point of view of uh, you know those who did not belong to the Western system. Secondly, I think it is also important to understand today that those who are wrecking the international liberal order are precisely those who were the chief upholders of that order. That's right. Right. That's so right. who who is undermining that order? Not India, <laughs> uh, not even China in that sense, because China says, you know, I want this order to continue because I have benefited. Benefiting so much. Out of it. Right. Who is dissatisfied with the international liberal order? It is the United States of America. That is it right. is the countries right. of Western Europe who find themselves unable to compete with the newly emerging powers, newly emerging forces of which China certainly is one of the most important, but China is not the sole representative of those new forces. So I think we should be a little careful in judging where India uh, must place uh, itself. I don't think that we should uh, somehow assume that we have a sort of a natural <laughs> interest uh, in the upholding this order. Some aspects of those order of that order certainly has been helpful to India. But there are other aspects of that order that we would want to see change. So there are, you know, for example, uh, existing regimes. Take uh, the United Nations itself. After all, we are dissatisfied because we do not have a position in the UN system which reflects what we regard as our major power status, right? Sure. If we look at the uh, global uh, trading system, we have major difficulties and have had these difficulties for quite some time. When we are looking at new regimes like climate change, like the you know space order, or we are looking at cyberspace, uh, we want to be able to play a role in shaping those orders, mm. not be as I said merely a rule taker. We would like to be in a position to be a rule maker. So I think there is a certain nuance in the manner in which we look at the international liberal order, what it really means for us. And more important is that whatever order is going to replace it, right? whatever is emerging as the new architecture, both regionally as well as internationally, India should be able to find diplomatic space for itself. And I believe that in the 
kind of transition which is taking place, the kind of flux which is taking place, this is also opening up opportunities for India to expand its diplomatic space, even though there are also major risks that we are confronting. Uh, so I understand. I think there seems to be a certain uh, dilemma here. The dilemma is that clearly the of uh, the um, receding world order, if I may put it that way, was led by the United States and the West. Um, but today there is a there's an emergence of a world order, which is the, the gravity of which is shifting to the, uh, the Asian continent, with China perhaps going to be um, the, 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 the key architect of that world order. Which one is clearly, which one is preferable as far as India is concerned? And to my mind, the Western US-led order is more preferable to a China-led order, uh, or would you look at it differently? Well, one is what is preference, and one is what is, what is the have. likelihood of what will Okay. Now, I have also made the point that, um, you know, as far as the United States is concerned, uh, it has woken up to the threat which China represents hmm. much too late. That, in fact, it was complicit in the emergence of China as a threat. Absolutely. Right? Uh, so now it has woken up and says, um, this far and no further. Hmm. But it is actually, what I say, is trying to shut the door after the horse has pulled it, in a sense. <laughs> right. Secondly, if you look at it from the Chinese point of view, I think the Chinese are making a mistake in thinking that they are already at the top of the pipe, mm. that they are already, you know, a superpower. Mm. So, to my mind, China has declared victory too early. And which is the reason why today you are seeing a huge pushback also to China. That's right. You know, it's not just COVID-19 related. There is a general you know, anxiety about what kind of great power China is likely to be. So if you look at its actions in the South China Sea, if you see the manner in which the BRI that you mentioned earlier, how that is being uh, rolled out. If you are looking at what's happening on the border with India, you see its, uh, you know, penetration in the periphery of India. Mm -hmm. If you take all these things together, then you can also understand why the rest of the world, not only in Asia, but in the rest of the world, there is a growing anxiety about, you know, China as a great power. So this is why I'm saying that China has perhaps declared victory too early. And which is the reason why we see a certain, uh, you know, sort of uh, flux, a certain kind of... Uh, you know, uh, a, a, a very disturbed situation internationally. And what I also foresee is that the confrontation between China and the United States is going to continue because it is structural now in character. But I do not see in the foreseeable future one or the other being able to prevail over the other. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there will be there will be a, a certain flux. But I also foresee that countries like India, other emerging powers, particularly powers which in their own regions are in fact quite prominent, 
quite powerful. Uh, there could be a trend towards greater multipolarity, if you wish to call it. But you are probably not going to see the kind of you know bipolar situation uh, that we had during the Cold War. I, I for one, do not see that happening. Basar, I think the, um, in my opinion, the biggest decision that India has to make at this point of time is how to respond to the China challenge as it were. Uh, and not just the China challenge in the region, but also the China-led strategic partnerships in the region. Uh, and, and, and day by day, uh, the intensity and the extent of those partnerships are increasing. How should India uh, deal with that, with that threat as it were? So, you know, it's a fairly simple answer to that question. Uh, the only way you can deal with this challenge is one through internal balancing and the second is through external balance. Mm -hmm. I would certainly prefer the first, <laughs> that is internal balancing. Right. Because it is only if India is able to expand its economic, technological and military power and shrink the power gap with China that it would be better placed to meet the China challenge. Why? Because if you look at potential competitors to China, India is perhaps the only country which in terms of its size, in terms of its population, in terms of its economic potential, in terms of its sense of itself as a great civilizational entity in the same manner that China is. India is perhaps the only country which to me has the potential not only to shrink this gap and catch up with China, but even to, to in a sense, surpass uh, yeah. China. You know? uh, so internal balancing is my preference. Now, if that takes time or if that does not happen fast enough, then yes, of course, external balancing will be very important. And the good news here is, as I said, there is a pushback to China's assertion of power. Therefore, it is possible for you to look at countervailing coalitions of countries which are as concerned as you are about this predilection on the part of China to be a selfish power, to try and accumulate power at the expense of others. So, a combination of internal balancing with external balancing is in fact the way to go forward. So uh, when we are talking about say the Indo-Pacific strategy or we are talking about, you know, is there going to be a crystallization of the pod, for example, uh, these are part of external uh, balancing. But even that external balancing, you know, will be perhaps more efficacious if India were able to you know, put its heads down and, and really try to uh, bring about economic reforms uh, also in order to make India once again one of the fastest growing large economies in the world. That will lead to a very major significant expansion in our diplomatic space. Right. Um, Ambassador, I am... Between, I, I, between 2000 2007, if you recall, during that time we were growing at the rate of something like you know eight to nine percent per annum. India was being looked upon as the next China. That was the period where we were able to create the situation uh, around us uh, in terms of better relations with our neighbors, 
we were able to create a very strong positive relationship with the united states which made the indo us nuclear deal possible even with china we were able to in 2005 get them to issue a map showing sikkim as a part of india for the first time we were able in 2005 to be able to you know negotiate the political parameters and guiding principles for resolving the border issue which was perhaps the most positive document which we were able to negotiate uh, for a long time this was the period when the special representatives mechanism was set up between the two countries to try and resolve quickly the border issue so if you look at that period that gives you a sense of what is possible if you are able to once again shrink that power gap with china it was not that we were in the same league as china but we while the chinese economy was slowing down our econ economic growth rate was going down this is the situation which came to a halt and reverse after the global financial and economic crisis of 2007-2008 and we have not been able to recapture uh, that uh, positive phase uh, since then. that that's an interesting distinction you made um, between internal balancing and external balancing now let's unpack the external balancing a little more i think uh, to get to a great extent when we when we talk about external balancing we are talking about the united states of america now a lot of people seem to argue that united states is perhaps uh, to some extent india's answer to um, the china challenge as it were um, is is that really the case i mean how far uh because the 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 relationship with the united states is uh, um a complicated question as it were so i think what we should be uh, looking at is what are some of the realistic possibilities that are available so even when we are looking at for example the indo pacific strategy it is not just anchored in our security relationship with the united states i consider it to be very important that we have also in the last few years developed very strong security relationship with japan very strong security relationship with australia we are you know enhancing and expanding our security relationship with countries of asean Uh, particularly singapore or indonesia which is going to be to my mind one of the major players in the future so i don't think we should be looking at a one silver bullet which is going to you know resolve all our problems certainly the united states america will be a integral component of any countervailing dimension but it is not the only you know sort of participant or partner Uh, when we are looking at that countervailing position second important point is especially if you look at a slightly longer term perspective so if there is going to be for the foreseeable future a sharpening contradiction between the us and china okay us is not able to prevail over china china is not able to prevail over the united states of america now it is conceivable that over a period of time one or the other is able to prevail that's a possibility i mean there may be a rejuvenation of the united states as a great power which has happened in the past you recall what happened after the vietnam war so i don't think we should write off the united states but 
it is it is likely that there will be a prolonged confrontation between the us and china until one is able to prevail over the other but there is also a possibility that they will come to some kind of an accommodation with each other if they are not able to prevail over one after all there was a certain kind of accommodation in the cold war between right. the us and the soviet union each had a certain sphere of influence which either side in fact respected so when it was eastern europe the united states america may make a lot of noise but did not really interfere similarly the soviet union would not do so with regard to you know what are the core interests or vital interests of uh, the united states and western world now is is that a conceivable future it could be that the united states of america and china decide that rather than be locked into this perennial and very expensive confrontation why don't we come to some kind of accommodation hmm. with some uh, understanding over spheres of influence now what would be the sphere of influence which china would want it is asia now that, where is it that, that we perceive the threat from china it is in asia so would we like the united states of influence or not so even though that is unlikely to happen in the near future but it is a possibility that we should not exclude you should have it in your mind that, that this could happen in the future and therefore where you position yourself in this changing geopolitical transition should take into account that possibility as well interesting in other words india should not end up becoming a sacrificial lamb in the great power right. competition as it were right because uh, yeah. the us in pursuit of its global aims may not be particularly mindful of india's interests interesting interesting ambassador um, you know there's a lot of talk today in india about the need to decouple from china especially in the wake of the lse standoff now i understand this is a lot of heartwarming talk but you know realistically speaking uh, how is it is it even possible can india afford to decouple itself from china economically speaking well i think we have the same dilemma which the united states is facing that you know in today's globalized uh, kind of economy uh, where there are extended you know uh, supply chains um, even if you say i will not buy this chinese product even if you are buying say a german product or you are buying a japanese product there are so many components which are being made in china That's so true. how are you going to treat that so i think we have to be a little careful that uh, we don't end up by hurting ourselves more than we hurt china through the actions which we are that's right that's right uh, we need to have a selective a nuanced kind of a response to this i am not saying that there will not be areas where it is better for you to not have to depend upon supplies Uh, only from china a diversification of sources of supply has always made sense and will continue to make sense and perhaps if this is pushing us in that direction i would say so much for the better for example if you look at the digital yeah 
it has dominant you know for example it is very much influenced by or you know it's the investment is coming from alibaba so we should be careful that a domain of the future which is going to be so important that is the digital domain uh, you should not allow not only china but not allow any power to have such overwhelming uh, you know domination so we can be selective in terms of trying to reduce our dependence upon uh, china but i think we should also be mindful that in this kind of very globalized you know integrated kind of market uh, it may not be possible for us to you know decouple uh, you know to a very significant extent i think uh, that is simply not realistic put differently it is not uh, easy to wish away china's economic or political influence in the region now it is the largest uh, trading power in the world it's the second Absolutely. largest economy in the world so how do you completely <laughs> decouple from it in that context and looking back at the say uh, when bri was still in the process of uh, uh, proposal stage cpec was uh, still in the proposal stage and china was inviting india left right and center to join those initiatives looking back at bri and cpec uh, uh, do you today think that it was a good thing or a bad thing that india rejected uh, being being part of either of these two initiatives so i would make a distinction between cpec and bri uh cpec is problematical because the projects are going through territory which is claimed by india as right. it so right um now for reasons of territorial integrity of uh, sovereignty i cannot see how india would say let's forget about it or put it aside and let's get on with work uh that is not something that Uh, i would uh, in fact uh, you know propose that we should right. secondly right. even if you said you were ready to join cpec <laughs> there is no indication that pakistan would give you any role in respect of uh, cpec so uh, you right. know how are we making an assumption that uh, somehow you know pakistan would be ready to accept uh, that india should be part of cpec uh, so that's a separate issue with regard to bri as a chinese you know uh, initiative i make a distinction between bri and say for example asia infrastructure investment bank where That's you right. are the second largest shareholder take the brics development bank not only are you a, a second largest shareholder but one indian was in fact until recently the uh, heading that uh, institute why the difference in our position with respect to these two both chinese led initiatives because in one of them the banks we had a major role to play in the whole design of the institution hmm. in what is the, hmm. are the norms it would follow what would be its lending policy what would be its personnel policy so we were a stakeholder right from the beginning so we had no problem in becoming part and parcel of what was truly a multilateral institution that's right now in contrast to that the bri is not a multilateral institution it is a chinese led chinese financed chinese designed project and we are being asked please sign on the dotted line hmm. why should hmm. we hmm. you know i don't know what is the financing mechanism that you have i do not know 
what is the manner in which these loans are going to be structured what is the relationship that you have with the partner country because it is actually a string of bilateral partnerships between china and the partner country exactly. it is not multilateral in that sense so it i think we should make a distinction between bri and a truly multilateral problem so i believe that india's caution on bri has been well founded and in fact since the time that we showed our reluctance to join you see a lot of developments taking place which seem to bear out some of the reservations that we have had in terms of for example you know the financial viability of some of the projects or whether or not the interests of the partner country have actually been taken into account having said that there may be specific areas where even if we are not part of the bri we can certainly utilize the platforms which are being created through the bri also to advance our economic interests mm -hmm. so i have pointed out that for example when we are talking about chabahar port we are talking about the north south link from chabahar into central asia the chinese are building a eurasian corridor now if there is a certain you know mutual interest in that eurasian corridor linking up with this north south corridor why should we say no merely because it is being done under bri so That's i don't right. think there is right. there is an ideological problem here we should so have a nuanced wherever, approach yeah, wherever it is possible for us in specific areas to work together yes we could have you know if for example china says that you know in building a port in indonesia let us uh, cooperate uh okay if it makes sense for us it is economically viable and it also is something on the interest of indonesia should we consider it yes i would say consider it of course in the current political context between the two countries we may not be able to look at that but i mean in in theoretical terms i do not see a problem Right. but i do right. believe that our caution with respect to cpec our caution with respect to bri in fact are very well ambassador here is my last question that's that's really a conceptual one in, in many ways you wrote in the hindu newspaper in june this year that it is sad to see and i quote it is sad to see that now foreign policy too has fallen victim to the very narrow and cynical jostling in domestic politics this can be very damaging to intelligent and careful foreign policy making uncourt could you explain what you mean by this rather strong statement that you made in that article oh, well i mean is it not easy to see how you know our policy towards for example pakistan is now almost completely determined by domestic political calculations you know uh, so uh if you if you ask me as a professional does it make sense for india to have a live western plan and now a live modern plan mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it doesn't okay mm -hmm. uh in terms of our relationship with bangladesh which in fact we have slogged for several years to try and bring it to a level where we have a good understanding mm. now if your home minister says 
you know, <laughs> there are termites who are coming from across the border. Should you be surprised that there is a, there is a, a very negative yeah. sort of a perception of India now in that country? So, uh, I think uh, it is very important to keep, you know, domestic political calculations as far as possible separate from what are in the national interests of the country. National interests of the country cannot be made a political football domestic. Hmm. Hmm. And I hmm. think we are losing out precisely because of our temptation to try and, and you know, score domestic political points uh, by you know, bringing, bringing in uh, foreign policy or looking at, say, uh, what may have happened in our relationship with uh, X, country X or country Y as a means of, you know, scoring points against some opposition party. You know, one of the great strengths of India has been that whatever may be the political differences and competitiveness uh, domestically, there has been a broad national consensus on foreign policy. And I think that has been a very important asset which India has. We should not try and erode that asset in this kind of a manner. Uh, yielding to the temptation of, you know, uh, using a foreign policy issue uh, for domestic political purposes. Uh, I know that sometimes, especially in dealing with neighbors, it is sometimes not very easy uh, to draw a line between domestic politics and foreign policy. You know, uh, you take, for example, Sri Lanka and the Tamil issue, sometimes, you know, it becomes difficult to unravel that. But the effort has to be made because it is very important that India's national interests do not get undermined because of this, you know, playing of a, you know, a, a kind of a political game uh, with foreign policy. Uh, I don't think that is very good for India. That is what I think. That as a professional, I would <laughs> not want to see that in, in trying to conduct India's foreign relations, I have to constantly be looking back at what the domestic political situation and what the you know, political masters want in terms of the domestic politics. No, I don't think that's a good idea. But that's an interesting point. You, you're basically saying that there was a certain amount of enlightened consensus in the Indian yes. polity yes. among the political class um, as far as foreign policy was concerned. So what, what, what sort of made it possible before, say, uh, um, uh, 2014 to have that kind of a consensus? Was it the character of the political class? Was it a consensus, uh, a sort of uh, um, understanding among various political parties? What made it possible, say, for, when you were foreign secretary? Uh, what explained the fact that there was even a consensus possible at that point of time? Well, this was a certain tradition which was put in place right since the early days of our independence. Mm -hmm. Just as we had a political consensus over the constitution of India, just as we had a political consensus about secularism, that's right. That's right. Just as we had a consensus about, you know, democracy as being a great asset for a multilingual, multicultural, multi-religious country like India. Hmm. It was not only just foreign policy, but there was the broad political consensus. And I would say not only political consensus uh, politically uh, amongst parties, but also a national political consensus. That's right. That is across the board. Right. There was a certain 
acceptance that democracy is worth preserving in india that secularism is something which is important for india i think what has started happening is that that national consensus has also started fraying but who is responsible for that it the responsibility is really of the political class i cannot i cannot get away from that fact that the temptation has always been that you know first let's get political power then we will see <laughs> what we need to do about other it doesn't work that that's right so uh, if we want to uh, safeguard india's national interests not only safeguard but if we want to promote india's national interests it is very important that we should restore political consensus irrespective of you know whatever ideologies or persuasions which various parties uh, wish to follow and in fact the political parties must work together to in fact strengthen the national consensus within the country because that is what gives power to uh, diplomats that you know what they are representing is not the interest of mm -hmm. one or the other party they are representing the interest of india you know so if i was in the foreign service for so many years never once did i have a feeling that you know i was not representing <laughs> india's interest that it was a congress interest that i was representing mm -hmm. or when mr atal bihari vajpayee was uh, prime minister that it was uh, prime minister atal bihari vajpayee's interest that were being represented no so i think it is very important that that national consensus the value of which is intangible in a sense yes mm -hmm. but that is very very valuable in terms of advancing the country's right uh, and you know this temptation that uh, if you do not conform to what i say uh, india's interests are therefore you are somehow or the other undermining the, uh, the nation uh you know that can be very very damaging to my to my spoken like a true statesman ambassador sir it was wonderful talking to you thank you so much thank you for listening to this podcast if you like this podcast please rate and follow us for regular updates you can also follow our twitter handle nsc with hj or our facebook page national security conversations with happy mon jacob